0: Support for Class Dismissed comes from School Status. School Status helps educators at every level take control of student data for increased outcomes and meaningful stakeholder engagement. Find out more at SchoolStatus.com. You are listening to Class Dismissed, episode 187, and I'm your host, Nick Ortego. A census survey suggests that homeschooling has spiked during the pandemic. And what could President Biden's Build Back Better program mean for education? Stay with us. Dismissed is the podcast that inspires educators through story. Each week, we cover some of the hottest topics and news in the world of education. Plus, we hear from a guest with a bright idea for education that you can apply in your community. This week, we're setting the record straight about rural education in America. What are the myths and what can be done to make it better? Hello, everybody. Nick Ortego here, and I'm joined by friend, principal, and co host Christina Pollard. Christina, how are you doing today?
1: I am pretty good
2: today, coming off of spring break, having some, you know, seven to eight days of, of rest, um, and coming back strong to finish this school year.
0: It, is it weird for you, it, probably more so for you than me, I'm, I'm reading all these stories about, I guess, the rest of the country starting school. For it, This is like, you know, we've been in school the whole year, and we've kind of been doing this in some form or fashion, hybrid, digital, switching the traditional, just kind of all over the place. But we've been for the most part, having seeing children in person, and now when I'm seeing like you know places in New York and big cities and other places up north kind of starting to get back into school, it's weird for me watching them go through that.
2: Um, it's not weird for me. I think I go through a range of emotions. Sometimes I find it comical what they're saying. Other times I feel like maybe the South, we were the guinea pigs and we've, you know, kind of laid out the path for them and they should probably listen to some of the things that we've shared about our experiences. And then other times I just kind of get frustrated because we feel the same way that they feel. And I'm aware in some areas where teachers are refusing to report to work or they're going to, you know, they're going to protest and all of these different things. And specifically speaking for the state of Mississippi, we we didn't really have a choice. Um, There's some type of law clause somewhere that teachers are not allowed to Protest? Did you realize that they not You can't protest in Mississippi.
0: Yeah, you're not, and you're not unionized in any way. There's really just not a whole lot of. It's a right to work state, and you you better show up if they tell you to show up.
2: And that's my point. So either you violated your contract and quit, and that has happened across the state. And I understand, you know, for some people, the anxiety or their worry, their fear, whatever. Um, But for the most part, we just really didn't have that choice. Um, And as a parent, my child has been virtual the entire year um, after going to school on the first day of school. And it was actually his choice. And so I'm okay with it. But then I understand that if he wasn't, um, you know, age appropriate for driving to or from and all of that, if I had smaller children, it probably would have put me in a bind like a lot of other teachers. So there's just a, a number of different ways to feel about it. But at the end of the day, We need to do what's best for children. And sometimes that means we have to sacrifice. And I hate that in this instance, um, a lot of people feel that you're sacrificing your life and your health and your well-being. And it is very, very true. And have we been at risk the entire time? Absolutely. Have we had an outbreak in our building and had to shut down um, in the month of December? Yes. Mm -hmm. But we are here standing. We are surviving. We are still social distancing and keeping a lot of our COVID protocols in place. Um, So it's just like, you know, sometimes when I wake up and I know I've had to come to school every single day, I want to tell them, you know, buck up and let's go teach kids. But then at the same time, you know, a lot of those districts, they're huge and they have way more students than we do and their challenges are harder. They have older buildings, Mm -hmm. you know, just just everybody has a different um, I know just different issues to, to think about when returning to school. So I, I I just really feel for everybody involved. And look, it's, it, we're, we're in spring. We're headed into a summer. And, and I'm just going to give you an example of something. I was slated to present at a national conference in July. Mm-hmm. And in my mind, you know, we're all getting our vaccinations. The numbers, I mean, record numbers of vaccinations are happening each day. But I got an email this morning from that national organization canceling the face-to-face conference. Mm-hmm they will have it virtually. Um it was a 3 or 4 day conference that was going to take place in Nashville and am I disappointed? Yes. Right. Do I understand it? Yes. But if a national conference has to cancel for whatever reason somebody um helped them come to that decision, then why are we, you know, having school? So it's just you could go back and forth on it in in so many ways and so I mean, I don't know about you. I have a Jamaica trip scheduled right. for June. And that next week was the Nashville trip that I was scheduled to take. And it's been canceled and turned virtual. So do I buy my plane ticket? Because I think you do. Out. What I do th- I do?
0: I think you do. Because and this is me. I don't have no idea even what conference you're talking about. But this is me just kind of making an assumption. If, if I'm running a conference, and I may not have enough people coming. And you have to make a decision today based off of whether or not we're going to turn a profit at this conference or this conference is going to cost us money, then they might be doing the safer thing right now to say, we don't know what's going to happen. And it, might, it might be a business decision, I guess, is what I'm getting at.
3: So And,
2: and I'm, I'm so glad that you shared that perspective because I didn't think about that Um it's a phenomenal organization it's a phenomenal conference and i didn't even really think about that that's 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 true it may have cost them way too much to put on what they're used to holding if they weren't having the the registration um, response. Yeah, it might just so, be a
0: risk. Yeah. So uh, no. financially. Hmm. So uh, let me ask you this. I'm going to ask you to do a, an unscientific sample. But for those that don't know, here in our state of Mississippi, um, teachers have been allowed to jump in line for the vaccination, gosh, at least for about a month, maybe or three weeks. And and now the state has opened it up to everyone 16 and older. So I guess what I'm going to ask you is, What's the tone of your colleagues, the people that work at your school? Are they all like, I've got mine, I'm rushing out to get mine? Is everyone kind of private about it? I mean, do you think that Um, your people are getting vaccinated?
2: I do think they're getting vaccinated, but we also need to think about the community that I serve in, um, the school community that I serve in. It's predominantly African-American. Therefore, we all know that COVID impacts you know, us differently mm-hmm. um, based on data. And so what I found is that in February, when it was only open to those over a certain age or those with medical um, differences, there were some teachers on my team who fit one of those categories and they immediately uh, set their appointments as I did. And then um, when it opened up for teachers and that email came out, I did start receiving text messages or emails about class coverage or when and how they can go and get their shots. And I absolutely have been encouraging people to do so for months. It's not political. It's health wise for me. If, if we know we don't have a choice, we've got to teach for a lot of us. We've got to we've got to teach because we've got to provide for our families. Then, what's the best and safe thing? Now, I will tell you that I had a conversation with one teacher um, about two and a half weeks ago, and this teacher explained to me every reason why um, they would not uh, attempt to get that vaccination, no matter what was going on in the family, no matter that they have to come and teach in the building every day. There's just some historical things that you know keep them from considering the vaccination. I shared a few facts. But I refuse to put pressure on, on, on anybody in the building. And I refuse to make anyone feel um, bad about whichever choice they make. They need to do what's best for them. Mm-hmm. And so that's, you know, I just think that if you have that opportunity, if you know that you want to protect your loved ones, you want to protect your students, and if nothing else, you want to protect yourself, then you go out and you get that vaccination. So I'm just really hopeful that our community, this particular community that, that I'm, I'm, I'm leading in, um, will have a good turnout. Now, where we live can't necessarily say the same. I haven't seen a whole lot of mask wearing and protocols being followed. Um, in the communities where right. we live, and our children go to school this entire time.
0: So, if I heard you right, if if a teacher's trying to get the vaccine and they they're logging online, we're making like, arrangements. Yeah, for so there's there's a window open at 10 a.m. That's great. You guys are bending over backwards to say, you know what? We'll cover your classroom. You you go get. We
2: that shot. absolutely are. Um, we're asking some of them to try to schedule it during their off period because obviously we don't have a lot of extra hands. Right. But being hybrid and having the Wednesday dedicated to professional development and uh, interventions has been a huge help. And so a lot of them have made their arrangements on Wednesdays.
0: There was an interesting study from the U.S. Census Bureau's Household Pulse Survey. And I want your reaction to this because does this seem likely? Have you heard this? And it says it, it surveyed folks from April 23rd, through May 5th in 2020, so just like you know, a month, month and a half into the pandemic. And they calculated that 5.4% of U.S. households with school-aged children were homeschooling. And then mm-hmm. by the fall, that number had spiked to 11.1% of the households with school-aged children were homeschooling. And that was September 30th through October 12th. And then where those spikes were was also interesting. Um, they had said there was a significant spike in... Um, Alaska, Florida, uh, Mississippi, Massachusetts, uh, Montana, Nevada, New York, Oklahoma, Vermont, and West Virginia, and they also saw a spike amongst um, African Americans. Does mm-hmm. does all that seem believable to you?
2: Absolutely does, because I have um, I believe my projected numbers for this year pre COVID was about seven fifteen, and we've hovered around six forty five. Um, And there are students we've been trying to find, you know, where did they go? They never registered. Where are they? Um, Students who we know where they moved to. um, But we also know which students prefer to do homeschooling. And it took a while to get them actually in homeschooling because for a lot of them, they thought virtual um, was the homeschooling option. And when you explain to them the difference that when you homeschool, the entire learning process is on you. You need to buy your own curriculum like you have no connection to the district. A lot of them corrected themselves and went from, you know, saying they were homeschooling to actually properly signing up for virtual learning. Um, but there has been a significant increase in homeschooling. Uh, I think that we don't truly know what ha- what's happening in the polls. We don't really know um, on party lines how people truly feel about COVID. You know, I think that there are some people that say or do what the majority is saying or doing. But in their heart, they know this is serious, and they know this is a dangerous, you know, virus.
0: Yeah, that that's funny you say that. Sometimes I'll see somebody who I would think is, you know, uh, a diehard Trumper, and I would make a, a stereotypical assumption that they would think COVID's uh, a myth, right? But then I see them double masking and being very cautious, and I think, all right, exactly, you know, this is a personal decision on everyone's level. You know, there's really no stereotypes to be made here.
2: And when you see that that's because COVID has hit home, right. Someone in their family has, you know, um, been very, very ill, possibly hospitalized, and in worst case scenario, has lost their lives. Mm-hmm. And it took that to make them a believer.
0: Yeah, sadly, that, that may be true. Um, all right. So another thing kind of on, on the political lines, I want to talk about, um, you know, President Biden just passed this big um, $1.9 trillion bill. Well, now he's working on apparently a $3 trillion Like infrastructure slash jobs uh, slash domestic priorities package. I think it's going to be broken into two parts is what the rumors are right now, according to the Washington Post. Um, But in all of that, and I don't want to get too much into what what this is going to cost, because I'm sure there'll be a lot of debate about that. But in it, um, there's two things that really jumped out to me. One was free community college, and the other was universal pre-kindergarten. Pre-K makes a difference, does it not?
2: It does make a difference.
0: I mean, do, do you can you all see a difference? I know you've worked with younger students uh, frequently. Um, I've
2: been in several districts since that push began, and I have to tell you, absolutely, yes, it does make a difference.
0: As for the free community college, I like this idea because I've always kind of been a believer that I would say universities aren't for everybody, um, mm-hmm. but I feel like community college and that technical training track often is, you know, you can kind of fill all those gaps for the people who maybe university is not for. I like the idea of, of saying, all right, let's get these kids trained in these with these technical skills, um, so we can ready our workforce for the future.
2: I agree. And I do think that we're really developed in that area. That's not something that I think people have sat by and tried to figure out, you know, who, what, when, where, why, or if it's even relevant. I think everyone um, understands the impact if you look at, um, just there's some numbers out there and I don't want you to quote me because I can't really remember what right, No, no worries. for, but there's some data out there, some PISA, P-I-S-A data. When you look at where the United States used to rank compared to all of these other countries. Um, and where we rank now It's because we've been hit really hard in that sector.
0: Yeah. We've talked about the PISA test on the show, gosh, a hundred episodes or so ago. Um, and yeah, we're not. We're not as in the, the greatest shape as you might uh, think. Um, so no. sh- sure enough, this $3 trillion bill is going to be difficult to pass through uh, Congress. We'll see what happens with it. There's going to be a lot of debate about whether we should be spending this much and where's the money going to come from, from uh, what we understand. It looks like there will be some tax increases. Looks like most likely for the wealthy and possibly corporations, whether or not that's the right thing to do is not really for us to say. We'll just kind of have to see how it unfolds. No. Um, At the
2: end of the day, I just think we need to do what's best for people. We need to do what's best for our country. Um, I wish there was a way to just drop all these, you know, different party um, stances and just really just do what's best.
0: I have With the $1.9 trillion bill already passed and basically shoring up states that may have struggled from tax revenue during the pandemic and so forth. is. Have you heard a sigh of relief or anything saying like, okay, well, at least we know we'll be all right with funding next year with our no. state legislators? Has anyone <laughs> talked about no. that? or is it? I haven't no, heard sir, that either. I haven't
2: heard anybody respond or feel that way. I think everyone is still in crisis mode and wondering what's happening next and if there's another wave going. I mean, you, you, you have to really look at what's happening globally. Are we going to yeah. have a third wave? Are our vaccinations going to protect us? Are people going to really t- travel the way we used to travel? Are are people going to get jobs again? I mean, is this real? Is it going to happen? I think there's still a lot of skeptics.
0: Yeah, the what's happening in Germany right now, which is a very, you know, technologically savvy country. uh, They have good resources and watching their COVID cases spike right now is a little bit of a wake up call. Uh, I think we've all been feeling pretty good about how the vaccine's been rolling out in the United States. And we've been doing a great job rolling it out. But to see what's going on over there is a little frightening. So I think. It is. Definitely still some uncertainty. I think you're right there. All right, Christina, we appreciate you joining us today. Are you ready for today's bright idea?
2: I'm always excited about the bright idea.
0: Our guests in today's Bright idea segment have dedicated much of their lives to teaching in rural America. In fact, they've even written a book about it. Jeff and Sky Marietta are co-authors of Rural Education in America, What Works for Our Students, Teachers, and Communities. Both Jeff and Sky grew up in rural communities and have taught in rural locations in both New Mexico and Kentucky, to name a few. And on top of all that combined, they have multiple degrees from Yale and Harvard. And that's me quickly simplifying what was probably, no doubt, a lot of hard work, Jeff and Sky. Welcome to Class Dismissed.
3: Great. Thanks for having us on, Nick.
0: Did I get all that right? Was was all that accurate?
1: Uh, it sounds funny when you say it like that. <laughs> yeah, it's well, <that's> all right.
0: <laughs> Try to recap your lives in, in a matter of 15 seconds. Well, and this this is interesting. Y'all, y'all's paths are are very interesting because you both grew up in rural communities in different parts of the country. And it uh, looks like you guys met um, both committing to the, is it the Teach for America program, right? And you were both in New Mexico?
3: Yeah, we were both there. Uh, I was there the very first year they opened a site there, and I was coming from the University of Montana, and then Sky joined a year later.
1: That's right, and I grew up in um, eastern Kentucky in the Appalachian region, and Jeff is from northern Minnesota, originally.
0: And and you both now are currently in Kentucky, correct?
1: That's right. I brought him back home to where I grew up.
0: (laughs) Okay, Good stuff. As I was kind of talking before we pressed record here, you know, we've been doing this show for years, and much of our audience is in what might be considered rural America. Um, So I thought, you know, we really got to talk about this. We need to have this discussion about what educations like in rural America. What do they need? Where are they lacking? Where where maybe they're stronger than people realize? And um, I guess first, the most important thing to do uh, is probably define
3: what is rural. Well, yeah, that's great. We actually address that um, in our book. It's one of the things that I think people, rural scholars, uh, you know, get really complicated with. And a big part of it is because when the U.S. Census Bureau went to start defining metro versus non-metro areas, they started with defining urban and metro areas first. And then anything that didn't fit, they just said, that's rural. And so like a lot of definitions and policies, they're very urban centric. Um, And so there's there's a lot of problems and challenges in actually defining rural. And we actually highlight a number of places where we've actually lived and and taught that in some definitions were considered urban areas. So for example, the the town that I grew up in Hibbing, um, because it is close to Duluth, Minnesota, which is a sizable city of maybe a hundred thousand, it's Hibbing is about an hour and a half away, but it's in the same county, and so Hibbing qualifies as a metro area. And Harlan, Kentucky, where Skye's family's from, it's a town of one thousand four hundred and fifty-two, and the entire county has about thirty thousand, and it takes over three hours to reach an airport. But the U.S. Census Bureau calls that an urban cluster. Huh. So, and, you know, and we could go on and on and on and on, but, you know, the big issue is, is that rural students and rural communities are vastly undercounted, um, in current definitions used. And, and they're also, you know, that creates, um, funding inequalities and a whole host of of other issues, um, but the one, I guess, fact, and I might get this wrong on the number, but the number of rural students total is larger than the top 100 urban school districts uh, combined. So that, that's just, you know, puts things into scale when we talk about what is rural in, 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 in the United States. And
0: for the purpose of the book, I mean, help, help me draw a picture In this audio podcast world that we're currently in right now, of what a rural school looks like in your mind?
1: Well, and I mean, a big thing that we talk about in the book is that there's so much diversity in rural schools. Uh, You know, sometimes in American popular culture, we have this very compressed, simplistic sort of caricature of what does it mean to be rural. Um, Rural doesn't necessarily mean white, it doesn't necessarily mean you're on a farmland. You know, we have rural communities that populations change quickly. Uh, Large immigrant populations, it could be anywhere from a place in Arkansas is going to be very different from a place that's in the Pacific Northwest versus in Appalachia. But there are some strengths that we see across them. And, you know, the funny thing we have, the fun thing we do in the book or that we talk about is we have a little self-diagnostic quiz. I mean, there's a feeling of what's rural. And if your listeners feel that they are in a rural school or in a rural district, they probably are. The other complexity is there's even some urban districts that have portions of them that are rural. Um, what's the one in? Um- yeah, so
3: like Hillsborough County, um, which is basically like the Tampa Bay area of Florida, it has a very urban area, but then it also has some very rural orange uh, citrus farms. Hmm. And so, you know, it's, it's a lot more complicated than... I think simply thinking about that Iowa farm or that, you know, Appalachian town in the mountains, coal mining community. Um, but, you know, as Sky said, I mean, we have this little quiz and, you know, one, the one of the very first questions is, you know, does your, does uh, Walmart and family dollar, are they a part of your daily and weekly routine? <laughs> <laughs> and if that resonates with you, you probably live in a rural community. Um, and then there's, you know, several others, and so, you know, I think the, the, the point we're making is you're not going to be able to tie us completely down on here is what is rural, but we will confidently say that uh, rural students are vastly undercounted in official statistics.
0: And in your book, you guys break it into three different parts. In one part, part one, you, you talk about what rural is and kind of defining it and kind of drawing that picture. I think in part two, you talk about meeting the needs of those students. And then part three, you're like, all right, what can we do? Like, what, what's actionable? And, and I guess I kind of want to get into first, like helping our listeners understand, like, what challenges do rural communities or rural schools face?
1: Well, we could talk about some big trends in education to start off with. I mean, even some of the most basic things, like we have this accountability system that's based on like robust statistical systems that assume that if you're testing students and understanding what progress they make, there's a certain number of students that you're you're basing that off of. So just fitting into Even some of those educational paradigms of understanding how students are progressing or performing or how a teacher is doing based on test scores can be very complicated in rural areas. We talk a lot about, um, in education generally, we talk a lot about evidence-based practices. Well, what if most of the evidence base is based off of urban students and we don't necessarily know if those best practices are still real and relevant in serving rural communities And just understanding what some of the strengths are and when some of the more specific challenges, things like transportation costs can be very different in rural communities. Programs like Title I that are set up to help children living in poverty, um, the way that they decide how those funds are distributed, there's a weighting formula that doesn't go on proportion, but instead on raw numbers typically in most states. So you can even have very large funding discrepancies for rural students and particularly You know, rural students living in poverty, and there's particularly vulnerable populations we think about, you know, rural students with a disability, rural students of color. These are populations that we don't often even talk about or uncover their needs in the larger discussion of educational research and pedagogy.
0: How much of a challenging position is a student that? grows up, say, in a community like you all are in, in Kentucky, in terms of, I guess, I know this may come across the wrong way, but breaking out of that community. Maybe they don't want to, but I mean, is, is are they set up in a more difficult position than, say, someone who grew up uh, outside of Boston?
3: Yeah, I mean, we really uh, attack the concept of brain drain um, and complexify that in the book. And so just, you know, contextually, you know, it, we have to look at the way that the economy has changed in the world over the last 40 years. And really what happened was, you know, you have this huge increase in the services sector, particularly around technology, finance, things like that. Um, and, you know, an incredible decline in agriculture, mining, manufacturing, um, the industries that largely employed a lot of rural people. So as that was sort of going on, it became increasingly more important for people to get a college degree. Um, and what has emerged, you know, over the last 10 years is that there's a huge gap um, in the percent of non-metro 25 years and older who have a college degree versus metro. And, you know, that, in itself is troubling, um, but as one caveat, uh, there's students in rural communities, even those who are living in poor ones, at, on, at fourth grade and eighth grade tests, national tests, they test on average as an average U.S. student. So the educational attainment piece is a huge problem. Um, and at the same time, you know, so you would say, well, you have to break out of that rural community because Maybe if you want to go to college, there is not going to be a job back in your hometown. But the problem is is not necessarily that the the town just doesn't have any opportunities for college degrees. But you know, the vast majority of students attend a college or a university that's fifty miles from where they grew up. Mm-hmm. And most rural communities are considered higher education deserts. So rural counties cover 97% of the United States, but are home to only 14% of the nation's colleges and universities. So you already have a big issue there. Then the other issue that touches back to the economy is that the vast majority of people, the New York Times did this great article, the vast majority of people actually live within a half an hour drive of their mothers, of where they grew up and you know so we say to rural people well there's you 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 have to leave to find success or whatever yet we don't have that same expectation for anybody else and then on top of that you know we also in urban and suburban areas we do encourage the top students to leave their community to go off to the best school that they can reach to but then they often come back. And so there is often this boomerang effect that gets lost in the shuffle when we talk about rural communities. There are lots and lots of rural students who leave their community and go to college because there's no college nearby their hometown. If there was, they'd probably go there um, and then come back a few years later. Um, but there's so much focus, uh, especially you know, in, in researchers, I think kind of miss that point, because they'll drop into a rural community, spend a year or a year and a half there, maybe two years if they're doing some sort of ethnographic research, but never truly understand the trends um, of, of a community.
1: Well, and there's this really fascinating piece of research that we talk about in the book that is part of the uh, Equality of Opportunity Project that was led by Rod Shetty, and one of their really surprising findings is that social mobility was greater in rural communities. And in fact, the more rural the community, the better odds a child had that they could reach a higher social status or than their parents had.
3: Hmm. I think
1: one of the big misconceptions we have generally is that if you live in rural America, you have two choices. You can either stay there and stagnate and not necessarily have very good prospects for your job or your life or you know if you've got some get up and go you're going to get up and leave and go someplace you know that's often framed as better and more urban and there you'll be able to attain the american dream and in the research that doesn't really bear that out it shows that very rural communities are often might be better at helping students move up and you know also in our lived experience it's not necessarily the truth and I'm sure that a lot of your listeners if they're living in rural communities can understand that rural communities have a diversity of opportunities in them that aren't always picked up in the research
3: and the other just on the, to tie this in to to today you know with covid um, and <clears throat> you know what we see is sort of a, a trend away from, uh, living in big cities and you know paying a lot for rent and living in a small apartment and sort of suffering through that, which is what Sky and I did for 11 years when we were at Harvard. Um, and we made the decision that this, this isn't, this is a quality of life issue. We can't stay here and do this and continue on this treadmill. Um, let's go to a community and, and live in, I guess we feel a more authentic way um, that's more communal than transactional that you might find in a, in a more urban setting. Yeah, let's talk about that a little bit. Let's talk about some of
0: the myths that maybe if if somebody grew up and, and has always lived in an urban setting or uh, even just a, a suburban setting that they may have about rural America. I mean, and, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but I grew up outside of Washington, D.C., Fairfax County school system. It was a, a great school system up there. It was a high, fast pace of life. I now live in South Mississippi, and I don't think my friends from Virginia understand how great of a quality of life actually have in Mississippi. It's like they they see the studies, Mississippi's last in this or 49th in this, and but it's not like that from where I sit. I mean, is that kind of how you all see it?
1: Yeah, and I'll say, sorry, I, I was beating Jeff to the punch here, but one of the interesting things that people underestimate about rural communities that might resonate with some of your listeners is we have a lot of very talented teachers in rural America, and we have some really good schools. You know, in places like rural Appalachia, where we live, a teaching job is a very good job with competitive pay. It has stature in the community. The community is really centered around the school. And, you know, we send our children to public to a Title I public school in rural Appalachia. A lot of people might think that that was a bad choice. But what we see is a much more personalized learning experience. Teachers who are highly trained, who have a lot of cultural knowledge about the students' backgrounds, who don't necessarily see children as being different, but just work with them and work to their strengths. So that is definitely one of the myths of rural America. And Jeff pointed out earlier that there's these gaps in educational attainment. So often when we see groups not attaining the college degrees, we assume it's because of the quality of their education. But what we saw is that when they're in elementary and middle school, these are not kids who are lagging necessarily. So it sort of is a shift of thinking, well, if there's a problem in the community, if there's a lot of poverty, it must be the problem of the schools and must be the problem of the teachers.
3: And, you know, just getting back uh, to the strengths, you know, we, we taught, we summarize them. Of course, one is Sky just talked about the highly qualified. We also talked about, you know, greater socioeconomic and racial integration, and then strong, deep and stable family ties and social networks. And then a fourth, you know, that we point out in the book is this greater connection to the natural world and food ways. And, you know, it, it is, I mean, we, we've lived in both worlds and we... Nothing could point it out better than the pandemic that living in a rural community was the best thing for for our family and for our kids.
0: No, I would have to agree. I mean, we we had a I don't want to say easy, but manageable time during the pandemic from where we are. We're spread out a little bit more. You have more mo- room to move around, um, you know. And and I wonder though did you see the digital divide at all? I mean, where I sit in my house, which is a fairly rural community, I still have gigabit internet here. Like, I mean, I have a very fast connection. Both my wife and myself do a lot of business from our home, uh, but what happens in the areas, I don't know if you guys experienced this, where you really don't have good internet.
1: We are definitely live in an area that has completely inadequate access to the internet. And that's a common problem in rural America. It was a a really big and serious issue during the pandemic. So in the county that we live in, 30% of families don't have access to internet. And then you've got this huge issue of people who don't have access to adequate internet. They have some kind of service, but it doesn't really allow for streaming. And practically speaking, one of the ways that that worked out during the pandemic, of our youngest child is in first grade, well, if you can't stream, how would your teacher get on Zoom and read a book aloud to you? So they just went back to school two weeks ago, And here we are in March, and that was the first time this year that our first grade child got to hear a teacher read a story aloud to him. And what is a first grade education if the best prospect that the school has is to photocopy paper packets and send it home to children? You know, and I think what I'm, what we're concerned we're going to see is these inequality, we hear it so often framed in the news as an urban issue. Urban schools are going to have greater inequality on the other side. We've got a lot of the same issues for uh, rural communities living in poverty, and then you mix in a lack of access to broadband. And we could definitely be standing at the beginning of just a chasm of inequality, and when we think of it as an urban problem, then we're not going to go to the Navajo Nation, for example, and understand how does it affect that communities. We're not going to go to rural Mississippi. We're not going to go to Appalachia. Those people will continue on in the background and just not become part of the conversation of equality and opportunity in our country.
0: And is that really the inspiration of the book for you all to say, hey, don't don't forget about us in these rural corners of the country?
1: Yeah, well, we just see rural
3: get misrepresented all the time. I mean, we moved here right before Trump was uh, nominated as the Republican candidate, and then obviously before the election. And that just seemed to change the the entire perspective of rural America like in 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 less than six months. And so there's a lot of misunderstanding, a lot of stereotypes. And then we, uh, you compare that where, um, you know, the New York Times is writing articles about the worst places to live in America, and the seven of the ten are in Eastern Kentucky, where we live. And and then you compare that then to our own experience. Well, and so
0: let's correct the record. Like, what are they saying, and what's the reality?
3: Well, they're, 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 just like you were saying, you know, from the uh, about health, you know, how long you live. Etc. all those metrics. And we covered in our book, you know, we have two sections. One's called from the outside looking in. And we literally say, if you looked at the statistics from an outsider looking in, you would think who'd want to live in this dystopian society called (laughs) rural America. Um, But then we say from the inside looking in, like you were saying, there's so many strengths. And so there's just this really you know, mismatch um, of, of information between what is accepted as as the narrative versus what is the reality. And that that was a big part of writing the book is just, you know, get trying to get that out there and, t- and tell people that it's not, you know, everything you read in the Times or whatever. Well,
1: you know, we're, we definitely don't want to pretend like rural America is utopia, right? We're not saying it's perfect. But we lived in Boston for eleven years and moved basically from Cambridge, Massachusetts to Harlan County, Kentucky. Mm-hmm. And fundamentally at the end of the day, people are not that different at Harvard than they are in Harlan County. People have the same desires. People are interesting. They're intellectually challenging. And you just want to help people understand that you know, people in rural America, they're good people, they're regular people. And the other piece behind it is we do live in rural America and When do you start to address things? Well, it's often when people who are on the ground who best understand the experience can take some ownership and work together and speak to it and try to solve problems.
0: Let me ask you, though. So like you said, it's not utopia. There are a few holes and things that need to be filled in. What are the needs of rural students? What could good legislation fix? What would you like to see happen?
3: Well, one, we wrote a blog for Harvard Ed Press basically saying that universal broadband is a national emergency Mm -hmm. and that uh, Miguel Cardona and and President Joe Biden should make that as the number one priority is to make sure that every single student in America at home and in school has access to uh, fast enough Internet, you know, broadband speeds, essentially. So that that's one big thing. Um, And then I would go from there, from a federal level, I would go down to the the funding, you know, what Sky said earlier about unequal funding um, on the Title I. Then from there, I would go down, we would maybe the next priority would be around high stakes accountability testing, which I think a lot of people are paying attention to. But that kind of stuff doesn't always work in rural America, where our school, K-12 school has what, like, 400 kids in it total, and our fourth grader or um, fifth grader, he has, you know, 50 other classmates. There's no statistical power in doing a high-stakes accountability test when one student who scores at the 1% or, or the 99th percent 99% can sway an entire class. So those would be kind of the top three um, in our mind. And then, you know, from there, you could go on and on and on into teacher training, into... Uh, curriculum into at, uh, post-secondary access. Well, let me ask you um, this. I
0: know in Biden's um, Build Back Better plan, apparently there's um, talk about universal pre-K. Do you feel like that's something that would help a rural community?
1: Well, we, yeah. <laughs> yeah, help America. <laughs> <Right>? you, know, <laughs> you know, actually we talk about early childhood and yeah. one of the great myths is that somehow people in rural America don't work and maybe don't need early childcare. The... The, one of the groups that most desperately needs childcare is actually um, rural African American women in places like Mississippi. They have some of the least access to Head Start, early Head Start programs, any kind of of childcare at all. And then you take into account um, some of the unique challenges around the kind of jobs people have in rural America. Well, if you work at Family Dollar, your hours might be irregular. If you work in um, mining or in you know timbering. It, it creates extra challenges. So definitely early childhood would be a great you know, help to rural communities. It also create more jobs.
0: Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. Well, what would be your advice to, say, a teacher that is her husband um, and her decide to move to rural America and she had never taught in a school like that? I mean, what would kind of be your... Okay, here are your tips for adjusting to this new community.
1: Well, we actually... Um, In the third part of the book, talk through a lot of ways that people can get to understand a rural community more deeply. Rural schools are just very uh, tightly knit, typically with the community that they're in and understanding some of the cultural and historical factors that are at play. We talk about things like population change, um, why, what the rural school has played and how in the community, especially around jobs, we walk people through a process to sort of have a deeper understanding of that context that you're teaching in. But, you know, the big thing is, and really might not be unique to rural America, is when you're coming into a community as an educator, you have a responsibility to become a learner and to reflect and to understand more about that community, to spend time in that community, to participate, to meet with parents. And, you know, I would say another sort of stereotype of rural America is that People in rural America are are afraid of outsiders. And that's another one that has just been very contrary to our experiences in the different communities that we've gone to. When you show up and you're just your authentic self and you work with people and you do good work and hard work, I think a lot of people find that rural Americans are very grateful, very loving, very accepting. You know, we've had a wonderful time as a family in rural communities with people being very caring and loving to us.
3: And just as another point, you know, what we see some classic mistakes that people who didn't grow up in a rural community come and teach in a rural community is they, they try to fit in, they try to be a rural, they try to fit that stereotype, and they should just be themselves. And when a student or a parent asks them a question about where they grew up, or, you know, to not be a not try to hide the fact, oh, I grew up in New York City because they're very curious. People are very curious about your background, about you know, your experiences. They may have never been to New York City. What is it like? And, you know they may they may have their own stereotypes. guarantee they have their own stereotypes about what that's like. So just to be open and honest about, you know, your own background, I think is another really good thing to do.
0: Again, the book is titled Rural Education in America, What Works for Our Students, Teachers and Communities. If somebody wants to find the book, what's the best way to do this?
3: Well, the Harvard Ed Press is, uh, you know, they sell it and we can probably put up a coupon code or something like that. Um, But we also we have our own uh, set of businesses and at Kentucky dot com. Uh, and we have a blog there, and we also, if you want a signed copy of the book, um, you can go to that website and and find it.
0: In, in Kentucky, Moonboat. you guys,
3: is are those coffee shops? Did I read that right?
1: <laughs> it's a lot of different little. Yeah, we got you
3: know, it's like ice cream, general store, Maybe. coffee shop. You know, just uh, the kind of things that we wanted in in our communities, and you know, so we're. Kind of people in rural America they wear a lot of different hats as I'm sure you right. know and um so that's kind of our our other hat
0: <laughs> well and so so what if we're if we're reflecting on the the travels that you all have had like I said New Mexico Kentucky you grew up in the Montana area uh you've been living you know in Cambridge any regrets about where you are in your life no no it's <laughs> you, you you like it better than say Cambridge? I mean, I'm just, I think some people (laughs) may be surprised and (laughs) I think I know what your answer is. The
1: hilarious thing is I think we maybe actually hurt some feelings during the um, writing and editing process because I, I think it just is so surprising to people to think that we would prefer to actually live in, you know, again, some of the poorer parts of Appalachian, Kentucky than we would to live in a place like, like Cambridge. And obviously, If our shtick was loving to go to a different restaurant every night of the week, or you know, there's things like that. that
3: You know, the the thing is, is that the most exciting work and the most impactful work is happening at the intersection where there's huge changes. And right now, the economy in rural America has undergone a just. Tremendous uh, shift, and especially here in coal country, where coal has been well dec- on the decline for decades, but precipitously so over the last five years. There's nowhere that I feel like I every day I'm making a huge difference in using all my various degrees and whatnot and, and 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 education to actually you know improve and and so. I I feel very fulfilled here more than I have anywhere else I've lived.
1: And we, again, we have our kids in public schools here and they're, they're doing well. And we have really great teachers that we think do a good job and care about them as individuals. And it's probably just life isn't, again, it comes back to, we imagine that other people's lives are somehow very fundamentally different, but at the end of the day, people are people and different communities come together in their various ways, but no, no regrets. I'm glad Jeff led with that. Cause I brought it back home to where I grew up.
0: <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, look, I mean like I said I grew up outside of DC in Northern Virginia. I married a, a girl from Poplarville, Mississippi. Um her and her best friend are two of the smartest people I know. They went to public school in Poplarville, Mississippi, a very small town. Um and and I have to be honest, like that was a little surprising to me at first. I didn't realize as we've kind of talked about through this whole episode that there really is great teachers, great schools and it's not always just what you read in the newspaper of, you know, 50th in education uh, for the state of Mississippi. It's not really like that when you kind of look at it at a, a micro level.
3: You know what we say in Kentucky. What's that?
1: You've heard this joke before, you know, it's coming, right? I don't know it. And thank God for Mississippi. <laughs> <laughs>
0: All right. You guys That's... let
1: us be 49th in a few things. Right. But... <laughs> yeah. I, I, I did
0: know that. You just had to refresh my memory. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Which, you know, probably you guys might say thank God for Appalachia or Kentucky sometimes. Well,
0: I will say this about Appalachia. I don't know what your community looks like or anything, but I have a, a feeling that it's got to be beautiful. I mean, you guys are in a, a yeah. beautiful oh portion gosh. of the country. and
3: Yeah, it's the springtime here is... Unbelievably
0: beautiful. Uh, I imagine October is as well when the leaves start to
1: change. Yeah,
3: yeah, you get both. Yeah, you get both. It's great.
1: And you know that brings us to one of the big points we want to make, which is we welcome people to come to yeah, come out America. and visit. You know, we love. We actually were talking about uh, planning our next trip post COVID to go down to parts of the deep south in America. We can get so siloed. If we are outside of DC, then that becomes our world, and we only go to other places like it. Mm-hmm. And you know, if we're wanting a country that feels more united. One of the best things we can do is, as educators and individuals is to go out to places that feel different to us and go and visit a community and spend time there and go out to eat and go hiking and find out what the attractions are. But we'd love for people to come and visit Eastern Kentucky.
0: Are you guys ready for our pop quiz?
1: Sure. Yes, let's do
0: it. All right, first question. If students could only go to school for one subject, which subject should it be?
1: Oh, I'm going to say it should be a literacy related. They should be learning about how to... Be great readers and great writers. The more you can develop your language skills, the greater you can communicate with others. Yeah,
0: I would agree. Some type of literacy or reading class. What are we not teaching in school that we should be teaching?
1: Well, that you can be in a skilled trade and that can be entrepreneurial and that can be a great career opportunity for a lot of children.
3: Yeah, I
0: would go with that or financial literacy. What does every child deserve?
3: A care. sequence of very caring and loving teachers. Scott?
1: Safe place. I would say, yes, absolutely. A safe place where they can go and have um, eat good food and be engaged as individuals and loved for who they are as individuals.
0: What's the biggest challenge for today's educators?
1: Is it bad to say a lot of time spent on assessment and not necessarily time to reflect or not getting the information you need about individual students and the time and space to reflect on that and to make adjustments to your instruction.
3: Yeah, I would say just being overwhelmed with everything and not being able to do the thing that they know matters the most.
0: What's the best gift to give an educator?
1: To make them not have to worry about test scores, I think this is super important. You know, here in Kentucky, they've made the decision that they're going to go ahead with the typical state accountability testing and you know if they said we're going to do this but we're only doing it to see to just to take a measure and see what we need to be worried about and we're not going to use it in any way to assess your performance on a year when most of you haven't even been able to have your kids in the classroom that's just a very good common sense thing it's it's really heart wrenching me to think about during a pandemic teachers worrying about accountability testing
3: So you said gift, I was gonna say a gift card to the nicest restaurant in in nearby town or whatever.
0: (laughs) We get all types of answers and sometimes that's it. And sometimes it's, you know, a thank you. So you just, you just never know where it's going to come from. Which teacher changed your life?
1: One of the teachers who changed my life wasn't actually my teacher, but I would say it's my mom. Um, My mom was a teacher. She became a teacher in a, in rural Harlan County in the early 1960s back when, well, in the 1960s in Harlan County, there were still a lot of one room school homes and, you know, going out and visiting students and the gift she gave to me was the gift of understanding how important it is to be an educator and how important students are and how important it is to to look at each one of your children as as individuals with potential and not think of them in terms of the circumstances in which they grew up
3: i'm gonna go with mrs bradley my first grade teacher
0: what mrs bradley do jeff
3: she made me feel I moved and you know my home situation wasn't always super ideal and she just was so loving and you know I think I learned how to read them too. So she was awesome.
0: And last question, pen or pencil? Well
1: pen. I'm gonna I'm gonna go with pencil because I love to draw. Ah. How
0: Opposites attract.
1: That's right. That's
3: very true. <laughs>
0: Well, thank you all uh, both so much for, for doing this interview with us. Again, the book is titled Rural Education in America. And and give us that website again, if somebody wants to go to your personal website to track it down and get a signed copy.
3: Yeah, it's KentuckyMoonBow.com. So the state spelled out with MoonBow, M-O-O-N-B-O-W.com.
0: Thank you both so much. All right. All thank, right you. thank
1: you. you. We've had fun. a great time yeah. talking with this you. great.
0: That's going to do it for this episode of Class Dismissed. If you want to send us an idea or comment, remember you can always email us at info at class or tweet us at class Dismiss.